All right. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to, let's start out in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Title of the message is Abundant Life. We're going to be all over. You can follow along with me in your Bibles if you'd like. So I did get a phone call from Joshua yesterday. We did communicate. He said, hey, I'm feeling stuffy in the, in the uh, head region here. And my body is aching, so I'm not sure. Um, so I began to pray, and the Lord had given me something to share. Um, but I didn't know. I thought I, I showed up really thinking he was going to be here. I didn't, I didn't get a, a call back to say, hey, by the way, you're up to bat. So, but I did prepare something, so it's not as bad as I made it sound. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for just the family of God. Lord, thank you for the new and awesome things that you revealed to us. And that's a beautiful thing, Lord, that you do not tire of revealing new aspects of yourself to us as your children. And so, Father, I pray that we would continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior. I pray, Father, that you would speak through your word. I thank you for what you've just shared with me. In these, I guess, day and a half of just putting this together and just pray that it would come through in the way that you desire it to, Lord, as we spend time in the word of God. Speak to us. We invite you into this place and we pray, Father, that you would be honored and glorified in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So abundant life. We get that from the scripture. John's gospel, chapter 10, verse 10, right? The thief doesn't come except to rob to kill and to destroy. But Jesus says, but I have come in contrast to that. So as the enemy wants to rob you, he wants to kill and he wants to destroy you. In contrast, Jesus says, but I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And I was thinking, okay, so I don't want this study to be just a Southern California 2023 abundant life kind of message. What about the kid in Somalia? What about the little family in Rwanda during a civil war that watches things that they shouldn't be able to see? Their parents murdered in front of them after maybe their mom was raped. And those kids are left to pick up the pieces of their broken lives for the rest of their lives. Does this promise hold true that Jesus says, hey, the the thief, he comes to rob, to kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and that much more abundantly. So is this promise true for them? Is this promise good for them? And again, because when we think of abundant life in America, when we think of abundant life in 2023, you know, there's certain things that come to mind. Certain, certain, certain things that should look smooth. Well, then abundant life must mean that my life is going to it's going to be smooth. My life is going to be problem free. My my thoughts are going to be clear of certain things and, and just whatever. Again, we come to mind Christianity. The Bible is God's word and it's true for all people in all places at all times. And I think, again, that perspective Adjustment for us, okay, so my life doesn't necessarily have to look like what America would say my life would have to look like for it to qualify as abundant life. 
And we, unfortunately, almost always go, always go to one of two things. Finances, material things, and relationships. So, so that means my relationships are solid, abundant life. And that means that my finances, my financial house is in order if I'm going to have abundant life. But again, let's, are the scriptures applicable for everyone at all times throughout all seasons? World War II. And somebody finds himself a victim of a concentration camp or something. You know, I mean, is Jesus promising abundant life? And the abundant life that Jesus is referring to here is in the here and now. It's not just in the hereafter. And so again, the title of the message being abundant life. I ask the question, what holds us back from a life of abundance? Why do we lack zeal for the things of God? And I think that's an important question because it's going to tie in to, I think, the, the abundant life that Jesus had in mind. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you got there, let's go ahead and start it up. I want to read it in its context. We're going to get to verse 9 and 10. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard all that God has in store for those who love God, right? But God has revealed it to us. But let's look at the context. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 6, the Bible says, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known it, or had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory." And so he's taking us back to first century AD. He's taking us back to those who put Jesus on the cross. And he's saying, God's revealing this wisdom. God's wisdom is being poured out. God's smarts is going out. But yet there's a contrast to God's wisdom. Some aren't receiving it. Because had they received it in this century, in this culture, Paul is writing to this church in the city of Corinth. They want to crucify the Lord of glory. Then he goes on to say, verse 9, But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And then verse 10, But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Wow, so this isn't pie in the sky. This isn't heaven. This isn't... It's some future time. He's saying, wait, wait, wait. The Spirit's doing something right now on earth. The Spirit's working amongst people. There's some people that are living in the culture that didn't get it. They put the Lord of glory on a cross. They, they wouldn't have crucified him had they received what God had for them. Eye hasn't even seen, ear hasn't even heard. All that God has in store for those who love him. And then he says, but God's revealing it. God's showing it. God's expressing it. God's bringing it. And then, again, finishing up the context, verse 11. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit, 
of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so the natural man cannot discern the things of the spirit. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about something in the spiritual realm that God wants to reveal. And God, not being a respecter of persons, doesn't care who so chooses to be in a place to receive. He wants to reveal. But we have to prepare our hearts to be able to receive. Now, natural man's not going to receive it. We're spiritual people if we're walking in the spirit and allowing God to reveal these things. Jump on over to Joshua chapter 1. Fifth, sixth book in the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Joshua chapter 1, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Joshua chapter 1. And again, I'm trying to build a foundation here. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard all that God has in store. And yet God has revealed it to us. We're talking about abundant light. We know that it's something spiritual. We know that we have to be walking in the spirit. Okay, so those are little foundational tools. Joshua chapter one, let's pick it up at verse two. Moses dies and Joshua is going to have to take this incredible great leader's place. Verse 2, Joshua chapter 1. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over to this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Two key verses, 3 and 4. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. As I said to Moses... From the wilderness of this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. So everywhere that your foot steps on, everywhere that you're willing to walk by faith and continue to move forward in the things of God with. I've given it to you. It's yours. Step out in faith. Again, context. Verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do... to, to do to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so the context of what is happening here with Joshua is, man, he's got big sandals to fill. This leader that served for 40 years after living 
as a shepherd for 40 years, after living in the palace for 40 years, and everything that he learned and everything that he took in and, and this, this communion that he had with God, he dies, he goes off the scene and Joshua is next in line to take this guy's place. And he's fearful. He's fearful. Over and over, he's being encouraged. He's being admonished. He's being um, just, Joshua, don't fear. Don't fear. I'm with you. I'm with you. And so the question comes from what God is defining, what God is delineating as this promised land, the land that was promised to the nation of Israel. About how much of it did they possess? Did they possess the whole thing? Did they possess their possessions? Did they walk in the abundance that God had for them? The answer, the sad answer is no. What kept them from the abundance? What kept them from what was promised? God's saying, I did it. I've done it. It's done. All you've got to do is walk forward in my promises. Don't depart from this book of the law. Meditate in it day and night. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good whatever that word is. Success. God's guaranteeing prosperity. God guaranteeing success. Not our definition. Not the prosperity gospel's definition. God's definition. A life worth living. A life of possessing your possessions and abundance. Note on verse 4, Pastor Chuck Smith writes, The children of Israel were given the land from the Euphrates all the way to the Nile River, but they never possessed it all. We too can come short of the victory God wants to give us. Let's enter into the fullness of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit to possess all the territory God has given us. Jump over to 2 Kings chapter 13. As we continue to build a foundation for this idea of abundant life. 2 Kings chapter 13. We're going to start at verse 14. Elisha is about to die. He would replace Elijah. And upon watching Elijah, this is 2 Kings chapter 13. We're going to start at verse 14. But right as he sees Elijah being taken up in a chariot of fire into heaven, right? This miracle. Um, The deal was, or the communication was, I want to experience um, a double portion of what Elijah did. So that's Elisha's prayer. And it's interesting that Elisha would perform through the hand of God, right? He would be a tool of God. He would experience twice as many, exactly twice as many miracles as Elijah. Just an awesome little dynamic, right? And so in 2 Kings chapter 13, again, now this prophet Elisha that has replaced Elijah is about to die. In verse 14, the Bible says, 2 Kings 13, verse 14, Elisha had been sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on the bow and Elisha put his hand on the king's hands. Verse 17. And he said, 
opened the east window and he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Now there is an operative word for the king, Joash. The prophet is telling him, this is what you need to do. You have an enemy and the enemy is going to come against you. And the enemy wants to destroy you. He wants to rob you. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy you. But at my word, I'm letting you know this arrow is representative of something specific. And so don't be haphazard, if you will, with it. Don't meander with it. Don't look at it flippantly with it. This is representative of something bigger for you in your life. It goes on, verse 18. Then he said, take the arrows. So he took them and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Why? He's giving him a heads up that this is representative of something bigger. And what does he do? Ah, I'm going to just strike it three times. If you go on to read the chapter, Syria comes against them three times. And what happens? Syria goes on to be a nation. He could have destroyed them. But there was this mm, lack of zeal, let's call it. Lack of passion. Kind of just going through the motions. Titus chapter 2 verse 14. This is where this is coming from. We were there two weeks ago. Titus chapter 2 verse 14. The Bible says, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Zealous for good works. Everybody is zealous. Everybody has zeal. Many a man is zealous for video games. Man, they know every new game, every new secret, every way to get around and up and over and through and reaching the next level. Just zealous. Many are zealous for her sleep. They're just lazy as lazy can be. And man, sleep just feels good. And they just, man, pull the covers up to here and it's done. Zealous. They're like, man, they're passionate about that, huh? Man, you can do that really, really good, huh? There's some serious zeal there. <sighs> Zealous for good works. Why did God save us? You know, Titus chapter 2, verse 13 says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. And then it says, who gave himself for us. This Savior that's coming back. This Savior that we are supposed to be looking for. This, this Savior that we are expectantly hoping will come back because he's our great God and Savior. And then it says, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. What are my people going to be marked by? What are they going to be identified as? They're going to be zealous to do good stuff that honors me and loves people. 
What does the Bible mean when it states that we are more than conquerors? Jump on over with me to Romans chapter 8. One of my favorite books, one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. Romans chapter 8. I think it's Chuck Missler who said, if your Bible falls to the floor, it should open to Romans 8 because that's where you spend time the most. What does it begin with? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And it ends with glorification. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? So in Romans chapter 8, for context purpose again, let's pick it up at verse 31. Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let that sink in. If God is for you, who can be against you? If God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sport? Does that group in Somalia, does that group in Rwanda fit in that category? Yeah, they do, don't they? Who shall separate us from the love of God? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Isn't that awesome how the word of God applies to all of humanity in all times and all lands? It's not just an American gospel. And we have this horrendous, horrible idea of what abundant life should look like. And we want to direct God. We want to tell God what that abundant life should look like. But God is saying, I've gone before you and I've purchased the land for you, for you and I'm prom- promising it to you. And all you have to do is step out in faith and everywhere the the sole of your foot touches, I've already given it to you. Will you step out in faith? Will you walk by faith? Will you walk in the spirit and, and just enjoy this thing called abundant life that I have for you? As it is written, verse 36, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Are you are you dying? Are you dying to self? Are you dying to your will? Are you dying to your life, to your ways? Is God doing that inside of you? Is he showing you through your circumstances? Man, it's not what I would sign up for, but I wouldn't change this. Get closer to God because of this. We are counted to she- as sheep for the slaughter. Verse 37. Yet in all these things, we are more then conquers through him who loved us. Key verse, obviously. The question was, what does the Bible mean when it states that we are more than conquerors? For I am persuaded, verse 38, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's all taken in by faith. That's all taken in by faith. Lord, you've demonstrated how much you love me on the cross. How how are you going to stop loving me 
after that, after I've given my life to you, after I've surrendered my heart to you, how are you going to stop loving me? You're not. Nothing can separate this love that you have for me. So I paused while I'm writing these verses and reading them and asked the question, why are you mad? Why are you depressed? Are you looking at your circumstances or at people? Switch your gaze to the perfect one. And I think that's where we get stuck. We get stuck on circumstances and we get stuck on people. Last scripture that I'll have you turn to. Isaiah chapter 45, if you dare. Isaiah 45, starting at verse 2 when you get there. When you get it, say got it. Isaiah 45, starting at verse 2. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, And Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not been known to me. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God beside me. I will gird you, though you have not known me. That they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. My last verse, you don't have to turn there because I said this would be the last one. I make you turn to, but my last verse is Psalm 2, verse 8. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And I just thought of that verse because what is it we desire? What is it that we want? What is it that we think, in contrast to what God says, abundant life is? And so now you have to take all of those scriptures, all of that foundation. You have to take all of that in. Are we looking for people and circumstances as what we consider to be the abundant life? Or are we looking to God? And are we walking in the spirit? And are we letting him lead us? Because these promises are for you. These promises are for me as a child of God. And I can walk in them. Or I can insist or I can, you know, shake my fist or whatever people do with God to kind of like, oh, this is an abundant life. What's so abundant about this? And could people throughout times in any land receive this abundant life that Jesus promises? And I say, yeah. I say, yeah.